Having a Gas is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries. And in particular, finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, f***ing to, and more. Today, I'll be having a gas with Ben Kay, an erudite, knowledgeable, and respected creative. Uh, ben tells me all about his new agency, Gigantic F***ing Solutions, and tells me about his plans for the future of creativity. Did you say you're in uh, LA? I am. I'm in LA. This is my... Yeah, my window, it's nice and sunny. Today. Oh my goodness. See, it's July here and it's Manchester. So as you can imagine, it's it's pouring it down. Yeah, that sounds like a recipe for although everyone spoke to in England, so it didn't really rain much between April and May. No, it was fantastically warm lockdown, which was very frustrating. Yeah, and then we're in July and it's raining. It's kind mm. of part of the reason I left the country, really. Right. Yeah. When did you leave? About six years ago, six years now on the twenty fifth. What was the what, what was the uh, reason for that? Why what do you what are you doing in LA apart from moving for the obviously superior weather? Well, we really just wanted to move. Like my wife rang me up one day uh, about ten years ago and said we should move to LA, and I was <laughs> like, "Yeah, that sounds great." So I I literally called my headhunter straight away and said do you have any jobs that they're not actually in LA, but they're kind of connected with LA? But they're like, you know, giving her a pretty difficult brief. And she went, oh yeah, yeah. The, the creative director of Media Arts Lab job is up and you have to go to LA three or four times a year to like, you know, because that's where the upper management is. Uh, and then maybe you can go and work in that office. So that's what happened. And then, so I was there for three years and then moved, moved in 2014. Okay, cool. What, what's, what happened before that? What was your background? How did you lead up to that? Because... Obviously, I saw, I've been seeing your updates on LinkedIn, which is how and why I got in touch. You, you know, you appear quite knowledgeable on Adland, on the industry and on, on the, the thinking behind what's going on. So I just thought I'd uh, check you out. But anyway, yeah, how did you get there? Do you mean the whole, the whole story? I can do it really quickly, but do you mean... Yeah, like, yeah. Where so we'll, we'll start with, you know, how did you get into uh, advertising creative and then, yeah. I, uh, well, my mum was a copywriter. Um, so I kind of, when I was a kid, I would go to, to her office, like after school, if I was out early or something. And, and there were people like with, back in those days, people, all the art directors had like a huge thing of marker pens and they could all draw everything. Mm. So the art directors would draw Mickey Mouse for me and stuff and I'd be like, wow, this is amazing. And then it did seem like the job was sitting around chatting quite a lot. So that sounded kind of fun. So, um, I just sent off some stuff at university, got some work experience while I was there in account management, realized I definitely didn't want to do that. And then um, I went to Watford College um, in the mid-90s and first got employed at YNR, got fired after about a year and a half, and then started AMV, which, where I was for about seven years. And then we, we started a breakaway BBDO agency in, in London, um, which went for about three years. I freelanced after that, all sorts of places from Wyden and Kennedy to Anomaly to 180 Amsterdam. And then, and then Media Arts Lab happened in 2011. So I moved here in 2014. And uh, I ended that about three years ago, started my own agency and my own, well, this is with my wife, a, a climate crisis initiative called Gigantic Fucking Solutions. And then I also freelance. Okay. That story in yeah. So, um, what's with uh, Invincible Unicorn? What's what's going on with that? Well, um, I think when so when I left Media Arts Lab, I was kind of like, uh, there's this 
you know, there's an age thing in advertising. It's an ageist industry. And it's partly because the, the older you get, generally the better paid you get. And at some point, you're going to be a number on a sheet, probably in for a holding company, where they look at this number and go, do we need to pay that guy that amount of money? Can we not just get some juniors in instead or some people who promote whoever's underneath them? And so I think that happens a lot. So if you're still in advertising in your 40s, that's good. If you're just in your 50s, that's pretty rare, particularly in the credit department. And 60s, you know, well done, you made it that far and it's probably time to retire soon. So um, I, I kind of felt that I needed to future-proof myself a little bit. You know, I could still rely on maybe getting freelance jobs for, at that point, it would be 20 more years. But I didn't think it was that was necessarily the best policy in terms of, you know, keeping a steady stream of income in, in the industry I work in. And I know people who've, who've left the industry entirely around that age and gone and started doing something else because, say, being a psychiatrist or something would be a job which wouldn't be ageist. You could just carry on doing it. So um, I, I thought starting my own agency would be a good idea. And then I was thinking, what, what, do, what, what isn't out there? What, what do we need in an advertising uh, sense? And I thought that ethics was something that wasn't really being catered for. And I felt like there were a lot of conversations about purpose and, you know, uh, companies doing good and, and corporate social responsibility and things like that. And, and, I, and I, I didn't just do it as a cynical, oh, that's a good way to make money. That's a good gimmick. I genuinely believe in all that stuff. So I thought, well, we could be the only really ethical advertising agency out there. And people laugh when you say that, like an ethical advertising agency. Um, so we had a very interesting experience starting an agency from scratch in a, in a city which isn't really an advertising city. LA has about three or four big agencies and quite a lot of very small ones, but it's not like starting in New York or London. So we were just, you know, pounding the pavement, looking for people who first might want to join us on the strategy side, but also possible clients. And as anyone who's done this, even if you've you know, got a huge name for yourself in a city like London and you try and do it in London, it's still really difficult. The hardest thing to do is get clients. And um, so we got a few and we did some work that we really like. And then we came up with this gigantic fucking solutions idea about a year ago. And we found it more interesting in terms of the creative opportunities that we're able to kind of instigate for people. And then we're looking for really big, you know, hence the name, uh, ways of tackling the climate crisis. So that's, we're kind of, Invincible Unicorn still exists and we still do work for people, but um, it's kind of a vehicle that's been folded to some degree into gigantic fucking solutions and sort of not. That doesn't help, but it's, it, it still exists, but um, we're not pushing it that hard. Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful. When do you think you're going to do the inevitable uh, abbreviation to GFS? Uh, sometimes a lot of people say, you know, why are you calling it gigantic fucking solutions? You know, you're going to put people off and whatever. But the funny thing is, it does a great job of, of shortcutting a lot of the conversations about it. Once you call yourself gigantic fucking solutions, everyone knows you're not going to stand on politeness. You, you really want to do this and, and everyone remembers it. And, you know, from the few people who have said, you know, are you sure you want to call it gigantic fucking solutions? After a couple of weeks of talking to them, they're like, that's the best name you could have possibly given it. Well, yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways it is um, because it's unusual, but it, it presents the whole attitude of what we say. We don't have time with the climate crisis. If you're going to be offended by the word fuck, then you really need to work out your priorities in terms of what the climate crisis is, is bringing to uh, the planet. Um, and if, if you can get past the word fuck, 
great. Let's now talk about what we can do to save the human race. Yeah, there's um, inter- obviously uh, offence is a, a key issue in the mainstream media at the moment, and the battleground of what is offensive has shifted from you know uh, pieces of language to sort of ideas about identity. That's where sort of controversy seems to lie at the moment, and um, uh, you know I'm interested to see how this is all going to um, play out over the next five to ten years. But certainly, I'm seeing a lot more discussion about climate issues for sure we've just been involved in a project with iris called the great reset that's you know the idea that lockdown has brought about a reduction in emissions how do we continue that good work and as an advertising guy um obviously advertising is built on the the uh is built on positive injunctions it's you know telling you to do things to go go places to buy things um and not necessarily not to do things. So, what what opportunities do you see in the in the sustainability in the climate world for promoting like positive action? Yeah, I totally see that, that that you should be giving people good alternatives to the bad alternatives. People still have to do certain things, and um, some of the first conversations we had with with creatives because we basically just explain what we do and tell our you know very talented creative friends about it, and some of them take it on, and some of them don't, but. But some of the solutions we were given were like business solutions that could help a company, that could help the environment and could help people. Um, so it's not like this hair shirt thing where you go, I now have to stop doing X, Y, and Z. It's more like a, how can you make... A great example is travel. Like tra- going on planes has become this sort of um, almost like commutary drudge now. You go to Stansted Airport or Manchester or whatever and you wait in a line for an EasyJet or Ryanair to somewhere in Europe and it's all... a really unpleasant shore and everyone hates it. You know, back when flying started, it was, you know, those suitcases with stickers on and one of the most glamorous things you could do and all amazing. So if we could get back to really explaining why travel is this incredible thing that you should really appreciate instead of it being this boring chore, um, that's one way that you could positively go, one one amazing holiday a year or four boring crappy ones. Yes. Um, it's one way you can look at it in, in those terms. And I feel like there's a couple of the, the things that we're working on at the moment that I'm, I'm not allowed to talk about are totally positive ideas that in, in, don't in any way curtail what people you know, want to do or how they want to live their lifestyle. I mean, I think we, we've got into a great space mentally where you know, we don't like to really buy things unless it's, unless it's strictly necessary and you, know, you kind of realise how much pointless consumption there is in the world. Um, and if you get to that space, you do feel good going like, why did I spend like $300 on a pair of jeans last week or last month? I already had some trousers. And, mm. you know, and I think that, that it also helps when you get a bit older as well. You just stop caring about things like that so much. <laughs> it's not quite so wrapped up in having a pair of Yeezys to show off. Yeah, of course. Uh, presidential Yeezys. Of, uh, presidential Yeezys, We'll yeah. soon have, yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> but it's good because... Um, you know, what Hugh said to me when I spoke to him on on the podcast said uh, advertising is where art meets commerce, and um, and it's, of course it's commercially driven. And I suppose maybe one of the uh, axioms of the twentieth century uh, could have been that you know, um, sorry about the lights, um, commercial commercial activity um, should just be about growth, and there are not that many constraints on it beyond how much we can produce and how much we can sell. And this, you know, with the climate issues we're facing, it could just be that we have found 
another constraint, you know, because everything you do is very tightly constrained, everything that, you know, we do. And um, it's it's good that we're, you know, awakening to the fact that we can't infinitely produce and infinitely fly and infinitely fish and all this kind of stuff. So I am, I, I view it as an exciting challenge. How can we continue with you know what we were doing whilst staying within these new these new uh, para- new paradigms these new parameters yeah i think I, mean, I just wrote an article for creative review about how parameters are essential in creativity you need limits and boundaries to push against it's like when you're at school and someone goes write an essay on whatever you like you suddenly go what uh and if they say write an essay on you know your summer holidays or even like the inside of a ping pong ball at least you've got something to kind of go off on and I think that's that's uh, really immensely helpful from a career point of view from the from the, the way that the climate crisis affects commerce it's um it's fascinating I used to have conversations about you know if you have conversations with a lot of people about capitalism and even now you know um you, you talk about whether capitalism is a good thing or a bad thing um and I think it's very default for a lot of people because the world we live in right now is based around capitalism and around further consumption but what's the end game of that? You know, mm-hmm. resources will run out. There'll be too many people and not enough stuff for them. And clearly the climate crisis is a result of, you know, consumption, consumption, consumption. And you know, I remember when I was at BBDO years ago, we had it explained to us that we needed a somewhat ridiculous percentage of increase every year uh, to keep going as AMV. It was like, why do, you, why do we need to keep increasing everything? Do we need to keep increasing everything in consumption? Because there is an end game to that, and it's the end of the human race. So at some point, you've either got to go, we're not going to do that, we're not going to play that game, or just accept the inevitability of, you know, we yeah. a very short time. Yeah, I know what you mean about the, the, the um, you know, I'm, I'm, no, I'm by no means a, an anti-growth or an anti-capitalist person, but I do sense the, 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 the meaningless, uh, meaninglessness or even... The sh- no, more specifically, the short-sightedness of uh, saying that growth needs to just continue uh, and there is no destination for it. Um, and like you say, that it, it's it's a it could go on infinitely. Obviously, the growth of BBDO, you know, someone would say that's just a that's a reductio ad absurdum. That's a preposterous idea to say that BBDO continuing to grow will uh, will destroy the human race. And you might say, well, fair enough, but what is it going towards? Is it going towards anything? You know, and uh, I think um, this is, uh, I don't know what's, I don't know what's uh, brought this about the idea that, um, you know, like all of the, all of the meaning in your life should come from, you know, career and uh, income and things like that. But, you know, I'm, 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 I'm somewhat speaking it off on a tangent here but that's kind of uh you, i think what you identified there was you need a goal everything you do needs to be towards some end and growth towards no end people do get nihilistic about it and also um disenfranchised and people uh young people are once again in their numbers starting to question the sort of foundations of our civilization like capitalism which is you know it, it's it's kind of a, a it's kind of a retro criticism you know, it's something that was happening a lot over the 20th century. But like you say, if there's nothing that it's moving towards, then that's probably the inevitable conclusion. Well, I mean, look where we are now. We are in the, the midst of capitalism, global capitalism, and we're fucked. Like, as a, as a human race, we're in so much trouble uh, right now. And the coronavirus is a direct result of messing with the environment. What What's happened is that... Um, the growth of cities has moved into areas where 
you know, animals used to live mm-hmm. and where apex predators used to be. And they had to move out of those areas. So when apex predators moved out of those areas, mid-level predators then started mixing in more ways than they did before because there weren't predators to kill them. So that's when you get bats hanging around in areas where you have pigs. And that means that inevitably at one point or another, those things are going to collide. And of course, human beings are there as well. Look, we've had a pandemic every five years since the start of the century. It's not weird. It's Mm. just this one happens to be the one that's uh, grabbed us all. But when it was SARS or MERS or... um, whatever the, the swine flu, any of those things, uh, Ebola. Yes. They were all just warning signs of what was going to come. And we don't know if the next virus or the next mutation of the coronavirus is going to be something that's even more problematic. You know, the way the coronavirus works is so random. It's like old people, but kind of, you know, young people will get weird things happening with their feet and then it causes blood clots and then, we have no control over what the next virus is going to end up, but because of how we've treated the earth and, and uh, worked with the spaces that we have to live in, we now have a virus that's ruined the economy. So capitalism is at this point where it's eating itself and destroying itself and destroying us. How, how can we really justify continuing with it? So what do you see as the uh, future of the advertising industry? Because obviously uh, there's um, there's um I would say a growing population of the advertising community is starting to get more and more disenfranchised with the core purpose of it. Yeah, I mean, the purpose of it, and the purpose of it is to, you know, expand people's. It generally is to expand people's consumption, but to to put messages out there on behalf of goods and services to do whatever it happens to be. But I think um, the disenfranchisement of a lot of people is down to, you know whether it's what advertising is doing right now, but it's also what's ad- what advertising has become in the last, say, 10 or 15 years. And, you know, you mentioned at the beginning about the ads I've been putting up from the sort of 90s and early 2000s. And people go, oh, my God, advertising was amazing. Oh, wasn't it great? And then some people go, what happened? And basically what happened was things like data on Facebook and Google. And that's not to say any of them are bad or wrong or problematic. They, are, they have just caused what advertising has now become, which is a data-driven um, you know, entirely measurable situation. So instead of creativity, which you can't measure, you've got things you can measure. So you go, let's let's try and reach these people in this way. It's about the targeting and about scraping data and about all those bits and pieces that are now where the emphasis of the money and attention is. And if you look on Facebook in your feed, there won't be any actually good ads There'll be kind of ads with maybe an offer, you know, 20% off if you stay at this place or you get three days for the price of two or something like that. They're all kind of like direct marketing offer things like coupons or something like that. So there's no long-term brand building anymore and or there's much, much less of it. And so when that happens, you know, the need and the effect of creativity is much, much, much reduced. You know, anyone can write one of those Facebook ads really because people are looking for the word free and they're looking for the word offer and whatever. It doesn't really matter. Um, so when you're looking for, for long-term Guinness, Levi's, whatever else it happens to be, stuff that if you buy a Guinness now, maybe because you saw a Guinness ad 15 or 20 years ago that made you think, oh, Guinness is actually kind of cool, even though it's some sort of old man's drink that takes three stages to pour and, you know, two minutes and it's kind of annoying. But someone made it cool, and that's what advertising can do. Whether it's promoting extra consumption and go back to the previous conversation, that that's problematic is one thing. But I think people are now disillusioned with what they thought advertising was when they got in compared to what it is now. And it's not as fun and it's not as enjoyable and the work isn't as good. 
Yeah, I suppose the one one of the things that advertising pot- potentially had going for it was that you there was a place where artists could make money if they were happy to um if they were happy to work for a certain kind of patron. And uh, you know, because it's very difficult to monetize creative output. And uh, hence why, you know, here I am a musician working in advertising because, you know, I couldn't quite make any cash making music in my early 20s, so this was my steady income, let's say. This was my plan B. And um, and then, as you say, there's less and less of an emphasis on the actual uh, creative side of it. And I know exactly what you mean. Whenever I go on Facebook or anything where, you know, there's a, there's a web of things watching what I'm doing online to see what it is that I like, and then in a very ham-handed way, just coming and showing me that thing. That I've already sometimes that I've already looked for. Sometimes it's related to what I've looked for. Often it's dead on, but you know, I don't know what your what what your YouTube pre-roll is like at the moment. Mine's always Squarespace, how to build a website to sell your business, and uh, native instruments uh, bundles. It's those two things ad infinitum. I have ad guards, so I don't get any ads. Mm. <laughs> Um, which you know, if advertising people are choosing to have ad guards, exactly. you've got to say that that's that's a weird thing as well. But of course, we all hate the advertising we're served up, and yet we're happy to continue producing it. It's really weird. We don't go, oh, well, we hate that, so maybe other people will hate that. Exactly. So maybe we shouldn't be doing it. Instead, we go, oh, let's put some programmatic, pre- like let's annoy people with pre-roll. Let's do that. That's that's good. That that works really well. And the problem was we used to have YouTube with no ads. So when pre-roll happened, you're like, oh, God, this is really dragging. You've got to watch. It's when you, when you put a trailer up, when you want to watch a movie trailer, you go, I've got to watch an ad to watch an ad. Is that, is yes. that really what you're saying? This is, this is kind of crazy. So, um, you know, I think that there's so many things there in, the, in, that, uh, in, in the, the new world of what advertising kind of exists to do and exists as a, I don't know, I, going back to what you are saying about it being a... Um, I, I don't know, a, a way people could express themselves creatively or have a job that allowed them to express themselves creatively because famous authors like Salman Rushdie and Faye Weldon started in advertising partly because I'm sure, I'm sure it was more like this in the 60s where you could kind of get your job done in a, a few hours in a day, spend the rest of the day writing and no one knew because yes. you're a typewriter. And, but then people like Hugh Grant and Alec Guinness, they, they started in advertising. Um, that guy, I don't know if do you know Little Dicky over there? Have you seen him? He's a sort of self-deprecating the, rapper. Who the did, rapper, did, yeah, with Snoop yeah. Dogg, right? Yeah, yes, yeah, so he used to work at Could Be Silverstein. So I think advertising as a job often gives you the opportunity to both express yourself creatively and mix with other creative people. You meet directors, you meet music people, uh, photographers, illustrators, and that, that's really cool. And then often there is enough spare time in a day because when someone tells you to write an ad, it's not like producing reams of paper for an essay or a thesis or something. You go... I'm going to have to kind of chat about it for a while, not do anything for a while, go for a walk for a while. In a couple of days, hopefully I've got your ad for you. So there's time when you kind of need to do other stuff. And I'm saying that someone who's written two or three books, two or three screenplays, an entire TV series alongside my advertising job because, you know, it's a way that I can express myself creatively. There's no one looking at my shoulder, correcting my copy or anything. Um, And I was talking to Hugh about this as well. I was saying that um, we both agree that even if you're really successful at, say, writing a book, you can't make any money off it. Like, I, I made it, uh, I made it what was called at that time a decent amount of money for, for the advance I got from my novel, and it worked out to me earning £3,000 a year. So if you, if you do a literary one, you might sell 500 copies, you might make, you know, 
a few, a few hundred quid if you're lucky. Mm. So that's even that path and lots of other paths aren't really lucrative. So, so advertising, you get paid and you can get paid quite well and still possibly if you do things in a certain way, have time or have it as your hobby. You come home and you do two or three hours of something else. Yeah, this is the thing, isn't it? As you were saying, in all creative output, uh, almost all creative output, you either get paid everything or nothing. You know, so if you're, even in my case, if you're making music outside of the advertising world, obviously, um, uh, you're on Spotify. The the data di- differs depending on who you ask, but there's some uh, this for the number of streams you get on Spotify and the revenue you get from that is something like uh, a million streams equals somewhere between fifteen hundred and three and three grand for a million streams. And so if you have just broken the back of that and you've done an enormous campaign to get your artist off the ground and they've done a million streams of their first single and they've got three grand, okay, big whoop. But if you're The weekend or someone like Drake and you're doing six million streams a day and you're then you're doing okay, but it's a, it's a very, very steep, which way around are you? It's a very steep distribution. There's loads of nothing and then a tiny bit of everything at, at the other end. And so... Um, yeah, I'd, uh, I, I think it's obviously a good... There's an incentive, certainly, for the creatives to keep... Uh, to to sell on the importance of the creative to the brands rather than, you know, the creative being a kind of magic show that happens before the media and, and, and the, you know, the insights. Um, because... Uh, well, I mean, I, I, actually, I actually don't know where that goes. If it's, it's very difficult to generate, you know, revenue from, from being creative and then the creativity and advertising is starting to taper off here in terms of its importance, then where is there left to go? And again, I'm reminded of something that Douglas Murray said recently. He said, you can't be expected, you can't expect people to be enthusiastic about capitalism if they can't generate capital. That's absolutely true. Spotify just boggles my mind when when I hear about those figures because I was reading David Byrne from Talking Heads, his book, um, How Music Works, which is fascinating. And he was like talking about, you know, the $400 he got from whatever, and I, I'm sitting there going, why even put your music on Spotify? And it seems like not only is it, oh, you have to, otherwise no one knows where to get your music or can't get it, and it's all free on YouTube anyway, so what's really happening? But Spotify is part-owned by the record companies that exploit the artists. And then, you know, they, they send enough money to the record companies, but the record companies don't really get much to the artists. And on one side, you know, perhaps Shania Twain had too much money in the 90s because you know, how much CDs cost 15 pounds or dollars or something. And it was, it was too much in that direction. But at the same time, if I want Radiohead to produce another album and they want a brass band on it and they want whatever, whatever, we need to be able to, they need to be able to afford that and they need to be able to afford it through being subsidized by the sales of the record. So if Spotify is giving them 400 pounds a week or whatever, I'm sure Radiohead make a lot more than that. Um, how are they then going to produce the next rep? You know, we, we'd all miss it, but we don't know what we'd be missing you know, what that's going to cost everybody. And I think with Spotify, the, the answer now is apparently gigs make you much more money or a lot of them are turning to live music. But obviously with the coronavirus, that's all dead. So you just have your £400 on Spotify. Where is that going to end up? Everyone from, you know, Coldplay at the top or whatever to, the, you know, struggling artists who are just trying to, you know, get by and, and have it as a living. It's, uh, it seems to be a crazy situation that's going to, result in no more good music. Yeah, that's exactly what we're going for here, isn't it? It's like, uh, I mean, well, the coronavirus crisis has revealed a big hole in in how a number of things work. And you're absolutely right in terms of um, the attitude from musicians was, well, money, uh, not money, music now costs nothing to access. 
So I have a Spotify premium membership, which costs me £9.99 a month. And then for that, I could have it on endlessly, churning out new music from a speaker, and that would cost me £9.99. And so, um, yeah, people, the, the attitude was, well, uh, gig tickets have to have to um, become more expensive. You know, we went to see the Rolling Stones a couple of years ago in the back seats at the back of the stadium, 60,000 people. It was about 150 quid cheap seats. And so, uh, yeah, some people were saying, why has that happened? Well, it's because you're not paying anything for the actual music anymore. Um, and as you said, there was there were these kind of assumptions, the same as at the beginning of big capitalism, you know, well, we're never going to fish all of the fish out of the sea. That's not possible. We're never going to, we couldn't damage the earth because we, you know, we are too small. In the same way, it's like, well, there's never going to be a thing that stops people touring and then something happens impossibly. And we've never thought about what happens to the, the revenue streams if that happens. Um, and there's obviously no plan B. So, I mean, do you think going forward, this, this, this coronavirus thing, is going to you know have that kind of long term effect where you know we're now having to rethink a lot of things and we're going to be seeing things in five and ten years as a result of this this lockdown. Yeah, there's a very interesting uh, podcast I listen to called Pivot, which is um, an American uh, journalist called Kara Swisher. She's a tech journalist, and a guy called Scott Galloway, who's a professor of marketing at NYU, and they talk about this kind of stuff all the time. And he says that coronavirus effectively has accelerated a lot of effects that might have taken ten years and brought them into right now. And yeah. I think you mentioned the Great Reset earlier on, and uh, my wife's been tangentially uh, involved in that. In fact, she's quoted on the white paper. We were yeah. having a read of it yesterday. Um, so I, I think there are um, there are a lot of potential kind of um, problems that come with uh, what, what's going to be next. And Because there's, there's a gap. There's a hole to be filled. And there's going to be a lot of bad people when you fill those holes and gaps. And there's going to be presumably some good people. Um, and it's kind of the never let a good crisis go to waste is a sort mm. of simple phrase that people give. And if you look at, it just came out yesterday, that the Kushners and Ivanka, Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump and uh, Kanye West all got the, the, the small business grants that were being offered by um, the American government. In fact, Kushner got three of them. So it's basically been a chance for a lot of companies to line their pockets again, even wow. though you're thinking, well, there's some poor Americans getting a $1,200 check that's supposed to last them three or four months. And then you're getting quite large companies who are applying for these grants because they have the time and the lawyers and the money to do the applications really well. And it means that they get the money out of it. And, and if you look at the, not only the tax breaks, whatever, apparently $4 trillion has now been given to big business in America off the back of what's happened on the coronavirus. And you think, hang on, this is just insane. Because you need, just absolute truth, you need people to have money to buy the stuff that big companies make. Right. Like, if Apple is going to continue making laptops and phones, if people don't have money, who's going to buy the laptops and phones? So we can't get in a situation, even with um, universal basic income or something like that. If people don't have enough disposable income and there aren't enough jobs and AI takes jobs, there's, there's a lot of research to say that the the uh, jobs, the I think it was, it was saying that about 800 million jobs are going to go to AI in the next three years. And this is before coronavirus happened. And the coronavirus is accelerating that. So everyone's going, hey, I've got rid of most of my workforce. Um, this is a good opportunity for me to replace them with robots and automate the, the whole production line, whatever, and they then I make more money, but what do you do to the people who don't have jobs? 
we've got to a place as a human race where there's not enough work for everyone to do. Yes. So I remember when I was traveling around in India about four or five years ago, like you got your ticket on a plane, you got your ticket checked by like four or five people. And once you thought, hey, finally, I'm on the plane, I've got a And then another person came along to check a ticket. And I'm kind of going, well, they've got just over a billion people and they all need a job. I mean, everyone needs to make money until we grow up and say, hey, really, everyone can just have a three-day week and we could share jobs and put money in that way or whatever it happened to be and, and have it all happen in, in that way. Um, we're going to be in a situation where there's going to be an enormous number of people out of work and no one really knowing how to cope with that as a societal you know, explosion. I'm just going to have to take you back a few sentences, Ben, because I got a weird delay feedback thing. I don't know if you saw me registering it um, and I'm hoping it hasn't recorded, but you said we need to grow up and think really... Yeah, yeah, we need to grow up and, th and think about the uh, how how we can live. Because what I was saying was that in the um, we should really say you split a job and everyone does a three day week instead. You know, we, we've had this a, a huge amount of automation and uh, labour saving devices, and yet we work even more than we used to. It's kind of weird. Like you know, back in the day when there weren't toasters and there weren't, you know, um, microwave ovens and whatever. Now you save some time, you save some time, you save some time. We seem to have saved all that time and added it to our working day. That's, so yeah. it's kind of crazy that that um, instead of going, well, hey, look, we could all do a three-day week instead, couldn't we, and look after each other and express ourselves artistically and care for old people and all the other things that you could do with spare time. Instead, they go, no, 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 don't just do a five-day week. You've got to do a six-day week. Don't just do a day. You've got to do evenings as well, presenteeism, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's all these people and not enough work to do. And we just pretend there is because you can measure quantity, but you can't measure quality. So you go, yeah. well, I've seen you. So if you, if you employed, say, a creative or a creative team, on a five-day week, eight hours a day, and you got them to work evenings, and you said, oh, it's a pitch this weekend, so everyone's on Saturday and Sunday, you could effectively get, you know, one and a half people for one person's salary if you just thrashed them to death on the hours. And in advertising, we kind of accept that. Go, yeah, yeah, it's advertising, rock and roll, we're going to be there late and eat pizza at three in the morning and come up with ideas and blah, 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 because it's sort of a bit cool and everyone's a bit younger and, you know, um, it's a young industry. But what that does in, in general is just allow people right at the top of Omnicom or WPEP or whatever to pay for one person instead of one and a half people or have a two-person creative team be effectively three people. That, that's what's really happening here. Everyone's just finding a way to, to exploit and squeeze more out of people who can't really do much about it and can't just walk out and get another job in the same way. Yeah, I'm really interested in what Rory Sutherland has to say when he's talking about behavior and personality. He's by no means, uh, he, is, he said he's uh, an impresario, not an academic or a researcher. But, the, you know, the way of thinking about things still seems to hold up in, uh, in some cases. So one was where he said, uh, we've been allowing the extroverts to dominate um, industry for a long time, you know. So in terms of the reason that we're skeptical about remote working is because the extroverts shout loudest and they say, no, everyone has to be in here or something like that. I'm kind of butchering it, but I'm moving the conversation from there over to conscientiousness because some people do thrive on doing lots lots of work. Some people actually enjoy that and think it's not even enjoy it. They think it's necessary, you know, that one of the problems we have as people, I think, with our values is we struggle to imagine why everyone doesn't have the same values. That's why we have disagreements, mm -hmm. right? And so people who really get up at six in the office at half past and they stay there till 10 p.m., 
perhaps the ones driving this. It's like, oh, come on, man. You're what part-timers wanting to go home in the evening and do other things. Yeah. What are you all about? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. And I think there's also a, definitely in America, there's a huge fetishization of work. Like it's noble. Like, yes. you know, Protestant work ethic. Is a good, what's the work ethic? Yeah, you should be working. You should be working. What's the downside of working? Whatever problem you have can be solved by working a bit harder and doing some more work. And therefore, if you don't want to do it, there's either something wrong with you or you're some lily-livered, lazy, you know, scrounger that you're not. And so it's going to take an entirely different shift of, of mental thinking because everyone's brought up to think that. At school, you're brought up to think that. No, just work a bit harder. You do, if you do the work, you'll get your exams. Work, 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 work. Mm. And I, I think the other thing is we conflate um, working on, on something we enjoy because works, works a kind of word that has negative connotations. You got to do some work means you got to do something you don't actually want to do where you'd rather be playing video games. Pushing a boulder. Yeah. Pushing a boulder. It's work, but there are plenty of jobs out there that are quite enjoyable. And if we were honest with ourselves, particularly, you know, I'm sure that the music you, you get to do and a lot of the advertising I've ever written, um, it was kind of fun. I was sitting around with my friends chatting and then you come up with something and then, oh, you're flying to New Orleans uh, with a great director and then choosing music. That's, is that work? Because it was really enjoyable. If someone said, would you, would you pay money to experience something like that? And I'm sure some people would. And it was a huge privilege and, and still is to be able to do things like that. But I think for a lot of people, the vast majority, you know, do they find as much fun in driving a bus or operating a laundrette or whatever? I don't, I don't know. And I'm sure some people do, but I think that's a, a balance as well, where work is this thing that's drudgery and unpleasantness and, and kind of crap where hopefully some people should be able to find a job that they enjoy. I just think it's, it's a small minority. Yes. I, th- I do think you're right. And I, I think, um, I noticed something, um, when I was at school, I, I, I was at high school between 2004 and 2009. Um, and the emphasis was, uh, you know, everything has a career destination. So, you know, you're at school so that you can go to, you can either break off then and get a job or you can go to college and break off after college, or then you can go on to university ad infinitum. But it's all about career destination. Mm. And there's almost no um, long, what would you say? There's almost no long-term discussion about what you, what your life is actually for, and you know what yeah. what you want to make of it. And the the things I heard a lot were uh, uh, just get a, just get a job that that you enjoy. And I was like, there are so many jobs that are unenjoyable that but that need doing that that cannot apply to everyone. And so, yeah. what are we saying to everyone who can't do jobs that they enjoy? What's their life for? Yeah, you're you're now you just got yourself into. 50 years, if, if you're lucky, don't get kicked out of eight hours a day. That's a, a half your waking life, hating what you do. Mm. And if you look at, if you look at like Ricky Gervais's The Office and you go, that's a lot of people's jobs. Yeah, sitting yeah. in an office in a kind of horrible thing, processing, you know, sales of paper or whatever and not really enjoying it and it being kind of grim. And then you go home and maybe you've got a, another half and you're, you're, you're both talking about your grim day or you and but kids are, you're absolutely right, we're put on a path towards being workers for a greater generation of money for some other entity. That's kind of what the Industrial Revolution uh, creation of the educational system has been. If you read Ken Robinson, he's, he's a great, great, he's got the best TED talk. And I think yeah, I've seen his talk on education and the arts, yeah. And, and education and the arts. And we're all, you know, you're taught to sit there and learn and 
do what you're told and more work is better and you know you can solve that and then you're right one exam then another exam then another exam then you go into a job where you generate more money for someone else where you start a company and it's all that kind of you're on a treadmill and there's no reason why it has to be that way we but we're so we're so set in that being a path and you're you're also right on the career path thing because there was always a joke when i was at university that if it wasn't a somewhat like clearly vocational leaning degree. And I don't mean necessarily engineering or, or law or something where you know that the specific job you're going to get afterwards, but anyone who did media studies or even English, you're kind of like, so what are you going to do with your time? You're just going to like scrounge and sponge off like the state. You're not going to get a job off that. Friends of mine had to watch Neighbours as part of their media studies degree. We thought it was a ridiculous joke, but why, why is that not a valid thing to study and what is the point of going to university that you then move into the management consultancy scheme at Marks and Spencer and then <laughs> move into a hedge fund or something like that what, what's the point of all that and, then, and you're, you're totally right that there isn't a, a point or a thought of purpose or even even at school they don't teach you how to live they don't teach you you know meditation or psychological kind of aspects of what you're doing or how to write a check or, or get a mortgage they teach you photosynthesis and they teach you pythagorean fucking geometry and they could teach you to live they could teach you what life ought to be like they could teach you you know philosophy in terms of how you might want to approach li- living your life and stoicism how to cope with you know, mm. when they go wrong. And we just don't because they're there to produce workers for the industry. Yeah, it is very strange. Um, and it's very strange that university has ended up like that because I'm quite a fan of, of um, well, some, somewhat a controversial figure. I'm a fan of Jordan Peterson's hypothesis that university is there to teach people to think, to write, speak, you know, uh, and to, to, to be able to make your arguments more generalizable skills. Uh, whereas, you know, once it comes time for me to go to university, which was uh, 2011, you know, uh, in the UK, I don't know, it's different in the US. And obviously, you didn't go to uni in the US, but it is different over here. As you know, it's like you increasingly narrow in onto something that, as as we've been saying, has, say again. So, so GCSEs, you do eight subjects or 10 subjects, A-levels, you do three or four, and then yes. you do one degree. Yes, and by the time you get to your degree, you better hope you've kind of bet everything on that because you're investing a lot of money into it. We're now in a position where you're investing your future earnings into it. Uh, uh, And this is at the age of 18. You're expected to be wise enough to know what you're going to be doing for the next 30 years uh, or so um, and and putting all of your future resources into that. Uh, And you really don't know the first thing about life or about the world and about how to think and, you know, what what it is that you might want and even why you'd want it. And that's kind of where we started on this thing, you know, what's the end goal? Like, why are you doing certain things? Like you say, there was at one point a kind of, you know, the Protestant work ethic, work was a noble thing because, it, you know, most people were poor at one point and it was making everyone wealthier. And that seems to have kind of tailed off. And now it's like, you you know, you've pointed out with the uh, ecological um, sustainability uh, uh, issues that are becoming more and more front of mind. That is an actual goal to serve, which is why people are going towards it. it. Feels like it has some 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 something solid to it, some meaning. We're trying to preserve uh, the environment for future generations. So, see what see where I'm going with this. It's like at school, there's and at university, there's no overall goal towards which you should feel your subjugating yourself that's worth doing is make a lot of money if you can and have a good time. Yeah, and I think it's only really relatively recently that that's 
it feels like that fabric's fallen apart. I think the 2008 crash, which had a lot of millennials who were just about to go into the, the workplace, realised they were right at the back of the line again because all the people who had been fired in 2008 were kind of ahead of them in the queue because they had experience. So millennials who were promised this kind of life from doing a degree in, in this country, in, in America, spending two, two or three hundred thousand dollars on getting that degree. And it's, it's crazy. It's like a really weird... There's so many things set up here that if you don't spend the money, you're not allowed to even play the next stage of the game. Mm. So if you're not a graduate, your chances of you know making a decent amount of money and going into certain industries are tiny. But to be a graduate, you have to get yourself two or three hundred thousand dollars in debt, or your parents do, and that will totally shape the choice of job you take because you've got to pay off that student loan. And it's not like when I was at, at university where you had a student loan that was you know tied to being a very low level of interest. It's really quite expensive here in terms of how it just continues to continue. And a lot of people never pay their student loan. So um, it, it's it's a really messed up system in terms of what people take on and what goes on next for them in terms of purpose. But if in recent times it's occurred to everybody that the environment is screwed and you might go, well, what can I do to stop that? Whether it's in communications or biochemistry or engineering or something like that, it is a noble cause. And it, not just a noble cause, but it's essential because... What, what looks likely in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years is a huge amount of further climate disruption that's going to cause mass migration, mass climate migration. And mass climate migration is going to cause war because you're going to have people leaving equatorial areas, going into areas that are more livable. This is what happened in Syria. Syria, people had to leave the farmlands, so they had to come into cities because their farmlands were devastated by the fact that, that there was no rain and the weather was too hot. So they went to cities, and that caused a huge amount of problems in the cities and caused internal strife and, and war, and people weren't okay with it. So people have become refugees. So the refugees leave Syria. They make their way across Europe. You find yourself with a refugee next to you in, in England or, or a lot of the Brexit thing that happens. So climate crisis, you know, if you join the dots, it leads to Brexit. And we're all saying, oh, it's Brexit. Oh, it's just whether, you know, you care about the country or not, or Maggie Thatcher or any of that sort of stuff. It's not because there's a threat of refugees coming from all sorts of places that, that was hyped up by all sorts of newspapers and other outlets that happened as a result of the climate crisis. And the climate crisis is a result of what we do in the Western world in terms of consumption. So there's a direct line between buying pointless crap and going on for holidays a year to the Syrian refugees that want to come and live in your country because it's currently temperate. But in fifteen or twenty years' time, it might not be. Yeah, so, and yeah. it's uh, you know currently uh, it's currently wealthy because we've been able to sell all the stuff that we can outsource to places where it's cheaper to make it. But uh, you know, um, people who live in those places might feel at some point if their place becomes intemperate, it's like, well, I, I've been making all your stuff. Can I come and live there? And uh, as you were saying, you know, there is um, you know there is a, a political reaction to mass migration inevitably because. Uh, it, in some sense, you know, you, it, there are there are cases where it's happened and it hasn't been subject to a vote, and certain people feel like, uh, you know, I I didn't. Um, well, that's going beyond my line of expertise, which is very narrow, to be fair. But you know, I, but I understand what you're saying. Mass migration causes political problems because not everyone approves of it, and then you're you are going to get mass migration as a result of climate displacement. It's interesting, actually. One of my uh, flatmates is currently doing a PhD trying to uh, predict, he's doing research, trying to predict better when the monsoon season happens in Nepal because they're currently struggling to grow crops because, again, climate change has made the monsoon season, which used to happen on an exact date every year, fluctuate. 
Yeah, and now weather patterns last longer and are often more extreme. So you go, oh, it's sunny. Oh, it's sunny for much longer. Or it's raining, but it's raining for much longer because mm. we don't know what we're doing to the climate. You know, the, the effects that were happening right now through all sorts of the actions that happen. And you, you, you're also right in terms of, um, you know, we've outsourced manufacturing to third world countries, not third world, developing countries, sorry. Um, and what that means is instead of us causing the pollution, they cause the pollution. Then we go, come on, China, why are you causing so much pollution? You go, because they're making all the stuff that we're not making because then you can charge someone $2 uh, you know, an hour instead of $15 an hour for it. Mm, mm. Going back to the capitalism thing, the funny thing is you go, it's lifting people out of poverty. You go, because there's now, you know, they've decided that poverty is living on less than $5 a day or something like that, and it's now $6. And you go... But six dollars is still fuck all. Six dollars is still a, a really terrible, poor life. To go, oh well, now you're on five or six dollars a day, and you go, oh, well, it's India. You can buy all sorts of stuff in India. Have you been to India? Have you been to countries that are still developing? Have you been to you know uh, really difficult parts of Africa? It's not like oh, you've got your six dollars and now you can you know buy a, a car for a hundred bucks. That's not how those countries work. They're still in huge problems because our definition of what's okay for them to earn in saying that, hey, capitalism lifted you out of poverty. Sure, it's more than they used to have, but it's still a very poor wage. Compared, why, are they, why are they not on the same wage we're on? Why, why are they not earning that? And you go, well, it's cheaper to live in India. Yeah, it's cheaper to live in India because everyone's earning less and you can't charge that much for a sandwich. No because one, no one has that much. No one's p- paying five pounds for a sandwich like they do a prep. So that's why that, that situation, when everyone's patting themselves back, you know what we did, but we did, we helped all those people uh, lift themselves out of poverty. Go and see the countries, they're not out of poverty at all. Mm, yeah, is this what you found when you did your traveling? Well, I, 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 I went to India for work a few years ago and I think everyone, even outside India, knows that there's a lot of poverty in India, of course, it's one point something billion people. And, but it's also a, a huge 200,000, sorry, 200 million middle class as well. Like, when I was there on, the, on behalf of Apple, you're talking about a country that can buy, that's, that's more prepared to buy iPhones than the entirety of America. Like if you've got wow. 200 million people who are middle class enough to afford an iPhone in India, that's way, way, way more than America. So you've got to start really looking at that, at that as a, a country that's offering way more than just, oh, it's India. No, no, no. You can start to really look at how to sell things to India. But then the wheels just turn even faster. How do we get the things to make all the all the iPhones or all the other products that are being sold to uh, to, to India and all the other developing nations? As China gets more money, as you know, uh, Indonesia gets more money, as, as Singapore has gone from being uh, a, a total kind of backwater with nothing much happening to it to an enormously wealthy kind of state. When when all those countries start to consume and consume and consume, and you've got to create more and sell more. Where again? Let's go back to the conversation of half an hour ago. Where does that leave you? Not in a good place. Yeah, and I feel like in some sense with the um, um, with the coronavirus crisis this year, which is you know the only thing this year is going to be defined by from now until eternity. I'd be very surprised if anything became more significant than this. Um, well, we, have, we have an election in November, but you, you're absolutely right that the the global the global uh, pandemic of this it won't be this year. It'll be this year and next year and probably the year after, and we'll just be will be used to it. No, no one's entirely curing it. It just seems to flare up in really weird ways. Sorry, go on, go on what, what you were saying. <laughs> no, I was, um, 
what was I thinking? Uh, the coronavirus thing has revealed to us the um, vulnerabilities that were a result of becoming dependent on places like China to produce everything because, you know, we were... we. we China was such a large supplier that you could make make an argument that there was an interest in you know covering up an outbreak until it was too late. It's like, well, you know, don't tell, don't tell them that we've had um, you know a serious um, a serious academic uh, epidemic breakout in uh, in a major city where everyone's currently leaving for New Year because we need everyone's business. And so, if we tell them that we're currently you know flying a, a virus out, they'll stop buying from us or. Whatever it is, you know, I don't quite know how to analyze it, but I do know that there was something at stake um, that, you know, that uh, there was something at stake that caused us to learn about the emergent crisis too late. Yeah, and I think a lot of it was also the way China set up politically, whereby they have regional kind of people in charge. And those people in charge really don't ever want to give bad news to their boss. So I've listened to a few podcasts about this, and apparently a lot of what happened was that, um, you know, they'd rather try and see if they can deal with, deal with it themselves. You know, like if you've, if you've uh, like broken a vase while your parents are out, you think, if I can stick this back together before they come home, I'm okay. And that's what happened on a grand scale in Wuhan. So once people found out about it, I think they wanted to suppress it as well. So they were like, let's keep Because if we can just get away with it, we're okay. Yeah. But there's evidence to say that, you know, that there are two different strains, one that started happening in Europe and one that's happening, happened from China. And the Italian-based one um, is five to ten times more transmissible than the one from China. People really, really don't know about exactly what happened with the coronavirus. You go, oh, well, maybe it was a bat or a pangolin in a wet market in Wuhan. But people are still working out because they're getting some – you can track back the genesis of people's uh, own uh, version of that virus and what and the, what they've had. And they found it appearing in very different places. There's theories that it was in America last year as well. So – we know what we know, but I think until people start to accept we're in the, the foothills of what the coronavirus is, you know, we're still in the first wave and trying to deal with it. And everyone's thinking, oh, we've kind of tamped it down and we're kind of back in pubs now, and blah, blah, blah. This thing's got a long old run to go. It's not over yet. It mutates every two weeks and we've got a lot of problems to deal with. But you're 100% correct that the infrastructure and the, the way that we're set up geopolitically and the way that we've become so globalized and the way that we use resources lend themselves massively to the coronavirus being impossible to properly contain. So what do you see happening? You said you said you said you can see some things continuing into the next year and possibly the year after. What kind of things do you expect to continue? Oh, by that I definitely meant the, the virus itself and the way we're going to have to deal with it because, you, you know, We've seen what, what happened. I mean, I don't know if you're watching everything's happening in America, but they were like, oh, we did a couple of months of lockdown. Now let's just turn the tap on a little bit. And we're getting over 50,000 cases a day. And yeah. we're an outlier in America. If you look at the graph, everyone else seems to be kind of, it seems to be going down quite a lot. But there isn't a cure. There isn't a, 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 a what's it called? Not a virus, a um What's the thing? A vaccine. Yeah. Um, the record for finding a vaccine is four years. And they've been trying to find the vaccine for dengue fever. They started that in 1955, finally got one in, 19, in, in 2017. And it's still not very good. There isn't a okay. vaccine for HIV. So the idea that we're going to, A, everyone will just be cured and it's all fine and don't worry, just get a shot, is 
fanciful to say the the least. It's it's kind of crazy. So I was really talking in coronavirus terms, but but in terms of how we deal with it, and from the kind of granular level of are we all going to work from home a bit more? I'd imagine we will if we're lucky enough to do a job that works from home. But industry after industry, in unpredictable ways, is just going to die. Like we we plan to go on holiday this summer, and that's say five thousand pounds that isn't going to airlines, hotels, Airbnbs places where we buy food in France or Sweden or wherever we were going to go. And that's all just a restriction of money. But then it knocks on to me and I go, how many jobs am I going to get as a freelancer that's still going to work? You know, in terms of people paying their rent or their mortgages, how does that continue? So this needs to play out a lot longer for us to really know what the problems are going to be. Because at the moment it feels like we're just almost like those people in Wuhan going, can we just kind of deal with it so it dies soon? And history tells us that's not going to happen. Right, yeah. Do you do, um, do you, I don't know, do you watch much Joe Rogan? I sometimes watch a bit of Joe Rogan. It depends on who his guest is. And also I'm on like a little um, message group of people who quite like him, so they occasionally send clips. But I'm, yeah. uh, I'm a wary sort of, hmm. Someone, someone said the other day on a tweet, Joe Rogan is what happens when people mistake thoughts for intelligence and... I was watching, because he said the, the sentence, masks are for bitches. So I was sending that to my, my friend going, Joe Rogan, with his viewership or whatever it is of, I think it's over 3 million people who really love what he says. Him saying that is literally going to cause death. It literally is. It's going to have people go masks are for bitches. So therefore, I'm not going to wear a mask. Therefore, knock on a few effects. You know, I'm not going to do it where I go shopping and blah, blah, blah. And then eventually someone's going to die from... Say, let, let's say out of 3 million, 200,000 people take that very seriously and go, master for bitches, I'm not wearing a mask. So Joe Rogan will lead to death. And I know he's just saying his opinions. It's his podcast, he can say what he wants. If he thinks masks are for bitches, that's his prerogative to say. But masks aren't for bitches. Masks are the one thing that's really going to actually uh, reduce the problems of what's going on at the moment. So you can be in a provocative Joe Rogan if you want. But I think not being responsible for what you're saying in those terms seems really um, odd to me. But that's that's Joe's shtick, so... No, that's exactly right. The, you know, free speech does come with a corresponding responsibility to use it well. I mean, uh, you know, this is not new. We watched a, a film when we were children called Spider-Man where he said, with great power comes great responsibility. It's well known. But... Um, Specifically, I'm going to, I think it's worse than you imagine, by the way. His viewership is something like 180 million a month. So it's. Uh, oh, pardon me. Pardon me. So we're going to get 20 million. Masters, yes. Multiply your effects. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there's a famous, the reason I asked was there's a famous thing, uh, there's a famous phenomenon on Joe Rogan, which is get that up on the screen, Jamie, because he has an assistant who Googles everything real time for him. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so uh, because you were talking about the um, daily cases, I, I thought I'd. Uh, uh, throw some up here and do a bit of screen sharing, assuming it doesn't crash our crash our um, connection. So, um, looking at this one here, tell me if you can see that. No, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I visit that site every day. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, here you've got UK daily cases. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to look at the frightening USA daily cases. Um, there you go. I know. No one. No one else has a chart that looks like that. Is, yeah, is, that's like we tried lockdown, it tapered off a bit, and then you go back outside and bang. Human beings are amazing. and I mean amazing, not necessarily in a good way, but what's going on in this country is masks and the way you deal with the pandemic is a political 
issue. If you wear a mask, you're a lib dem dickhead who doesn't care for freedom like the yeah. rest of us do. And obviously you've got a president who will never be seen publicly wearing a mask. Never. Very strange. So you got that. So therefore, it's fed exactly into Democrat Republicans. And, and maybe you've seen the um, there was a thing in a, in a sort of local council thing where, where members of the public were explaining why they didn't want to wear masks in a sort of uh, a council meeting. And this woman's going, "It's five G infections and blah blah blah." There's some whatever that. And then there's a guy going, "You won't mask me like a muzzled dog. You won't mask." You know, like. This is literally, this is like not smoking in front of a child. This is just being considerate to other people. Mm. It's, I'm being masked like a muzzled dog. Or, or, and then some woman said, what's wrong with the breathing apparatus God gave us? And you're going like, there's nothing wrong with it. But like, would you never wear glasses then? Mm, yes. That's what you're saying. And, you know, you don't help. What's wrong with the skin God gave you? Why are you wearing clothes? I mean, it's kind of weird. Yeah. And so... There's, all, there's all these incredible justifications that you go, wearing a mask, which is a considerate thing to do to stop spread of this thing, so we can all go back to work and start earning money again, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. It's a political statement where you are, you are other. You are either a dickhead mask wearer or a evil, stupid, bigoted non-mask wearer. And that's, yeah. that's been played amazing. Yeah, I think that's specifically, well, not specifically, but I do think that's more happening uh, over there than it is over oh, here. Yeah. I, I have really sensed that this has fallen down, as you've said, the, 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 the divide is directly political. It's conservative, liberal over how people respond to the coronavirus. And, you know, with protests happening in April saying, you know, I just don't think the government can tell us uh, to close our schools and our businesses. I don't, it really didn't interface well, in my view, with this, um, with the harder American views of individual liberties, like there are things that no one can tell me to do and you cannot tell me to wear a mask. It's like, no, no, but we can very strongly advise it and here's why we're advising it. But uh, I don't know um, where to go with that. I do know exactly what you're uh, describing, you know, the um, um, the idea that people have responded to the coronavirus as if it's a tyranny imposed on them by other people. Yeah, and I think, I think the whole way that they're pressing it's the China virus or the Kung flu, or whatever terrible phrase Donald Trump or Mike Pence are using to, because basically Donald Trump, his back is against the wall right now. It's looking pretty crap for him in terms of the poll numbers. And it's looking not only will he be defeated, but he defeated in a in a landslide. Because what's what he's been given to deal with this year is the exact opposite of what he can deal with. Well, like it involves yes. needing compassion. It involves um, having to take short term pain for a long term gain. He yes. can't and will not do any of those things. So this is a perfect, perfect, perfect storm for him to look terrible. But that means that on the other side, he's doing whatever he can to just stave off when when this is going to happen and how big the effects. And that's how it all started. If we tell everyone it's a problem, the stock market's going to go down. Yeah, if you don't tell them it's a problem, the stock market's still going to go down, but we're going to have an enormous number of deaths as well. And so the, the way everything's played out and spun out here by the, the Republicans is they're very good at it. But I, I also go on the Fox News website every day just to see what the, the other side is thinking or what other people are thinking. And it's incredible how... There's, there's still a massive support for what Donald Trump is and does and how he's dealing with things. And you're thinking, are we living on the same planet? And we're mm. not. Because if you've made a bet that you, you're into Donald Trump and you like him and you voted for him, you're probably not going to stop now because he's, he's made a thousand 
wrong decisions that are, that are bad. You know, that he's whether he's paid off porn stars or you know been racist or supported risk, any of those things. One more is not going to make anyone change. So yeah, yeah, that's a very specific uh, gift he's got, isn't it? It's a very uh, interesting um, phenomenon I've never seen before. Someone who has courted so much controversy that they've actually become somewhat immunized to it. And um, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat close with with people who are um, supportive of Donald Trump and is, uh, and and assume that any um, any dissatisfaction with him must be because you have been watching CNN or you've been watching the yeah. news and people have told you not to like him. But you know, I always come down to the ver- the most basic because you know some people try and say ah, but uh, there's these uh, policies that are quite good or something like that. He's done very good for economics and business, but you know, it, for me, it comes down to I don't think he's a respectable person. I wouldn't recommend him as a friend to, to someone I loved. I don't think he can speak well under pressure, and that's a real problem if you're leading a world that is dependent on arguments, you know, and 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 things being put forward clearly. I, I you know, if when he's giving the daily press briefing at the White House, I am not filled with confidence. No, I mean, it was the guy who said, inject yourself with Lysol. And, and, you know, I'm taking this drug that isn't really proven. In fact, if there's been any research at all. But yeah, when you go on Fox News, there will be a lot of people who say, well, you're a, they call them dims instead of dems. So there's a lot of really school level name calling. It's Mm. it's really quite depressing. But yeah, all all those people who are like, we're now on Trump's side. If, If you backed him when he was the pussy grabber, and he backed him with um, as many bankruptcies and, and corruptions as he's had, then he won't give his taxes, then you're going to back him with one more racist statement. Of course, you're not going to stop. But I feel that it's definitely in the last month or two that the, 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 the tide has turned for him. I think there's a lot of people. And I think when, when, it, when coronavirus started, it looked like who it was going to be attacking most uh, problematically. It seemed like Trump's base, really the older people who tend to lean conservative and people in um, in red states who don't have the infrastructure to deal with this. So you knew, and it was almost perfect timing because if this happened in, say, September, October, I don't know if, if it would have played out enough for it to affect his poll numbers in the same way. But with perfect timing, we're now going to get a humongous raise in, in uh, coronavirus cases in the very states that are either swing states that he needs or even red states that are becoming blue or purple because um, the, the people are having to deal with with incredible hardship because the economy's gone, or knowing someone who's died of the virus or has been in hospital because you have the death figures fine, but the number of people who have had a terrible time in hospital and are dealing with it months and months later is a huge number as well. So it, it was funny because when it began, I remember there being figures where coronavirus has killed five thousand people, the flu every year kills a hundred thousand people, whatever it happened to be. You go, yeah, but the coronavirus has had a month to do its thing. You you do know this is going to play out to much larger numbers. I mean, are yeah. we stupid here or what? And here we are, coronavirus is the biggest killer in this country. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, it's gone in a very predictable way. You remind me of uh, Bill Nye, not generally, but in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where um what does he say? He says, I'd rather be happy than right any day. And um Martin yeah. Freeman says to him, And are you? And he goes, uh no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that's it. It feels like you can you can read all the science and facts and go back to the Donald Trump arguments you might have. It's not just about your opinion whether you like him or whether and people like him because he he fights. Apparently, I've been, I've listened to a lot of podcasts. There's a great podcast series called Republicans Against Trump, 
which is run by the Lincoln Project, who, who are disaffected Republicans who, who kind of look at how it is. And they, they like Trump because he fights for them. If you're an evangelical, you'll, take, you'll accept the fact that he's a pussy-grabbing person who pays off Playboy stars because he will fight for you to uh, stop abortion. And you're going, look, he's, he's on our side for that. Will Biden be on our side? Um, and so, so you're kind of dealing with, with problems in that way. But it's, there are facts out there. If you look at this in a factual, somewhat intelligent way, we've got different countries uh, have shown us how this happens if you, if you deal with it in different ways. We had a preview from Italy. We had previews from Spain. You, you knew how this was going to happen if you didn't deal with it properly. And we've seen the Spanish flu 100 years ago. You know how a pandemic can really work if you don't properly you know, hold it down. And so there's plenty of information. It's out of nowhere. But if you're, if you're not going to... Um, you know, look at those facts and just look at it through the lens of I support Trump, I will therefore look at everything he says in a positive way. What can you do? Yeah, yeah. We'll go for one more thing because we've gone over an hour here and we've not even gotten around to any music, so I've no doubt that we'll be speaking again. But um, I want to know what you make on the... um, the Joe Biden thing, because I also do sympathize with people who say, I can't believe Joe Biden is what we've got to, to throw against against Donald Trump. I, 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 uh, think he's, I think he's a good guy. I was a supporter of the Obama um, administration loosely because when it came into effect, I was 16 and knew nothing. And when it went out, I was 23 and still knew nothing. But um, nonetheless, I think Biden seems okay, but it has to be said that he's 78, you know. So, so what are your general thoughts on it? I think he's, he and his people are playing quite a, a clever game. And again, the coronavirus has, has played into his hands a little bit. But I think if he was out the whole time and having to give speeches, he's not the most articulate person. He does say weird uh, little uh, faux pas all the yeah. time. Big faux pas, I don't, I don't know really. But nothing compared to what Trump does. So you're kind of comparing apples and oranges, but trying to, look at them being apples and apples. You go, oh, well, look, Donald Trump, you know, Joe Biden said a couple of weird things. If you look at what Donald Trump has, you know, tripped over his tongue on or his feet on, he's done it just as much as Biden, but they're trying to portray him as someone with Alzheimer's or whatever. I think that what what Biden's going to do is put together a really good cabinet of a lot of the people who people may have liked more. The other... The other candidates, whether it's probably not Bernie Sanders, but Elizabeth Warren and Buttigieg and Kamala Harris, and it's, I think a lot of people have a lot more confidence in them coalescing around a leader who isn't necessarily going to do an enormous amount himself. Because I think, as a very basic thing, I think he sees himself as a one-term president. The idea that when he's 82, he'll mm. go from 82 to 86. So he's picking his vice president in a way that possibly leans towards them being the next president as well. So he's got to be kind of careful about how that happens. But I think in general, he's been able to keep quiet and say the odd thing occasionally, just let Trump ruin Trump, no problem at all. And yeah, I don't think he's so much people's number one choice, but as an alternative to Trump, he's, you know, a walk in the park. He's a, a cake with cherries all over the fucking top of it. And, yeah. and, and as much as... He, I, I would love to have seen what Bernie Sanders would have done with, with the presidency, but do, do we want to take a chance that... The, the main thing is beat Trump. Then what happens after that? And Biden, I believe, will beat Trump. And if he puts together that a really good coalition of a, of a cabinet around him, then we'll, uh, I'll feel pretty confident. And not only that, it feels like because of what's happened to the economy and the, and the virus, 
they've been he's leaned way further to the left than I think people were expecting. Not mm. quite into Bernie Sanders territory, but I think before he was going to be, I'll continue the Obama years, neoliberalism, didn't really work for a lot of people, but a lot of people couldn't tell that, that was a problem. So we'll carry on. Now he's going, I can't do that. And the country can't do that. We need to, we're going to be lifting people out of poverty who haven't worked for six months. There's, you know, I've forgotten what the numbers are, but 25 million people have applied for um, unemployment since the things happened. And that's gone down a little bit. We're still talking about tens of millions of people in massive economic trouble that he's going to have to help deal with in a way that Trump's literally just going, how do I get re-elected? How do I get re-elected? How do I stay out of jail? So I, I feel good about it, even though he's not my you know, favourite first choice or anything. Yeah, okay, right. Well, uh, we should probably stop it there, but there's um, obviously a lot more to talk about. So uh, this has been really interesting. And thank yeah, you for taking really the time. It. Oh, got another delay thing there. That's good. And um, <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know when this is going out. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, you uh, I've, I've heard you mentioned a lot and seen a lot of your, um, you know, the stuff you've been uh, doing on LinkedIn. And so, uh, and so, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll keep an eye out and look forward to speaking again. Yeah, if you want another chat, uh, always good to have a, a chat with, particularly with, with some English people, not to say that American people aren't good to have a chat with, but it's always nice to get a different perspective from another part of the world and good to talk about all these things. So thank you very much. All eyes are on the US at the moment or from all over the world. So, yeah. And, uh, hey, you know, it's an ambition of mine to end up in uh, Los Angeles myself. So who knows? Maybe I'll see you there one day. Maybe. Cheers, Greg. Have a good uh, rest of the day.